Hi, my name is Sarah Rachel Brown. I'm a 30-something-year-old woman, and I live in Philadelphia. I'm a contemporary jeweler. And like many others, I am an artist trying to make a living. On this podcast, I'm going to broach the subject of value. I'll be talking to studio artists and performers, educators and administrators, and anyone else attempting to combine their creative endeavors with how they get a paycheck. As I mentioned in my first episode, I recently moved to Philadelphia. I was transitioning out of my position as artist in residence, which was at the Aeromont School of Arts and Crafts in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And transitions, they're rough, and I'm okay with admitting that I struggled a whole lot with this particular one. I didn't own silverware. I did, in fact, own 50 handmade cups because I lived at a craft school, but I was drinking out of those cups on my brand new floor. I felt lost, and especially when it came to my studio practice. When there's no grades, no deadlines, no built-in audience at an artist residency. How do you push yourself, is the question. Well, I just decided I was going to apply. I applied to exhibitions, I applied to many jobs I did not actually want, and I just kept going hoping something would, you know, help jumpstart my creative drive again. This past spring, I applied to the Philadelphia Museum of Arts craft show. And knowing it's competitive and a highly regarded show, I made sure to keep my expectations to a minimum. But I got in, and I experienced all the feelings one gets when they received an acceptance letter. It felt really good. And then eventually the weight of what I had just been accepted into started to sink in, especially when I got that email saying I had a month to pay my $1,000 fee. I've never done a craft show before. I am starting at ground zero, and there is a lot to think about. There's things to think about that I don't even know I need to be thinking about, and I'm pretty sure that's what's leading to my stress dreams currently. Which brings me to today's guest, metalsmith and jeweler Rhea Rossi. In 2015, she was an emerging artist at the PMA, and like me, It was her first time exhibiting at a craft show. So for those listening who do not even know what a craft show is, don't worry, we're gonna get to that. Oh, really? Oh, good to know. Okay, so Rhea Rossi is your married name. Good to know. So, um, jumping in, thank you for coming to be on Perceived Value with me. Uh, we're going to broach the topic of the Philadelphia Museum of Arts craft show today, um, and I'm really excited about it. So thanks. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, jumping in, I wanted to start with a little bit about your background. Okay. So you live in Philadelphia currently, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Okay. And did you grow up in Philadelphia? I did. Oh, okay. Native. Yeah. So technically, I live right outside of the city. I live on the main line right now, mm-hmm. um, but I did grow up within Philadelphia. Oh, okay, cool. And did you go to school in Philadelphia for college? Um, So I I visited my dad down in South Philly growing up. So I was in the city on the weekend, but um, I went to school at Lower Marion High School after moving from Springfield. Okay, and where'd you go to college? Uh, I went to RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology, School for American Craftsmen for my undergrad. Oh, I've heard really good things about that. Like Erica Bello went there. She's Mm -hmm. I know Erica, she's great. She's so good. Uh-huh. Um, so they focus mostly on technical skill. Do they really talk about conceptual work or? They definitely did both. Um, oh, okay. So we had to do a thesis show for um, for graduating, mm-hmm. um, but it was a lot of technical stuff too, and it covered a really vast range of applications and processes. Um, I got an amazing, edu- amazing education there. Yeah. And okay, so for college, did you have a college fund? Did you pay for it yourself? How'd you do that? Uh, I mostly paid for it myself. I actually uh, worked for the entire summer before my first year and put six thousand dollars into the first year myself and my mom helped me the first year but then I was cut off after that um, which was incredibly scary but I stuck through it and um, I got grants and scholarships Uh, I worked 
I did whatever I had to do. Um, I knew yeah. how important it was to finish college because so many people told me that if I took a break, I may never go back. And I was really enjoying what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So um, I kept doing it and I did graduate. That's great. What was that um, summer job that you had before? Oh my God, I had all kinds of jobs. Um, I actually worked doing like the sandwiches on campus. Um, okay. I was a custodian or like janitor. Uh, oh. I did that on the weeknights and weekend. Um, I also worked at a horse farm and shoveled horse crap. Uh, I did, I, that was the only job I've ever been fired from because I wasn't good enough. Oh, what? You weren't good enough of shoveling horse crap? It paid really well, but uh, my friend Katie did it with me and she like is from Iowa. She's a really big girl that can just like haul all of that weight move fast and I couldn't so the woman oh. laid me off she was like I can't have you here it's okay you've moved up and on to better things thank you I think so too so you graduated from RIT mm-hmm. did you go to grad school I did so I didn't go to grad school right away when I did move home um, I considered doing the sculpture program at University of the Arts so mm-hmm. I like stopped by and saw the facilities and everything but I had never really thought about going to grad school seriously um, so the way that it ended up happening was that um, my boyfriend at the time and now husband uh, was considering going back to school after he had taken a break because his dad got sick. So I was on campus with him. I was familiar with Tyler. I used to take um, weekend workshops there. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went with him to visit the school and I wanted to check out the new facilities that Tyler had. So I walked by the jewelry department and the first thing that you see when you walk in there is the CAD and 3D printing room. Oh yeah, I've been in there actually. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I was absolutely blown away. I um, thought very little of 3D printing. I thought it was completely like an industrial process for like high-end jewelry. It wasn't something that interests me, but they had started to introduce it when I was a senior at RIT. Well, can I interrupt you? I didn't get dates on that. What year did you graduate from RIT? 2009. Okay, so this is 2009. Okay, so you're looking at Tyler in what, 2010 or still 2009? Uh, it would have been the end of 2010. Okay. Yeah, because I started in 2011. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Yep. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. No, no, you're fine. <laughs> um, so I saw some of the stuff that uh, students were 3D printing, including a piece that uh, Joshua DeMonte had made, which was incredibly complex. Uh, and I wanted to be able to make things that you couldn't make by hand because uh, geometry was something I was really interested in. Um, I was blown away and I knew I had to go there. So I set up a meeting with Stanley Letson. I actually talked to Emily Cobb for hours when I went to go visit the facility. She was absolutely amazing and showing me around and talking to me th- about things. Uh, and I put in an application. Um, when I was accepted, I was kind of weighing out my decisions about going or not. And I knew there mm-hmm. were assistantships. Um, but unfortunately, there was not one available. I was accepted, and I decided to still go. And then about maybe like a month before classes started, Stanley called me up and said an assistantship was available to be the tool room technician, and would I be interested? And I said yes, and I had that for two years. So that helped me to pay for grad school. Okay, so when you guys say assistantship, that means um, it's like a work study, basically. Yes. Part-time, and then you pay for it. But how much does it? Because I've heard Tyler is expensive. Um, word on the street. So... What did that pay like 50% of your tuition or? Yes, it was half tuition off. Um, and then it was also a stipend for doing the work as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it was very helpful. Um, I, Temple, from what I've heard, is actually one of the cheaper oh, really? uh, schools, actually. Well, oh, at least okay. it started out to be an affordable school. I definitely yeah. think that it's gone up. And for grad school, I wouldn't say it's necessarily cheap, but I've seen more expensive. You see more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so did the rest of that. Uh, amount I'm assuming that you just took out student loans I did and yeah. I kept that to a minimum though oh good job so yeah, you're still paying student loans a lot though more than, <laughs> than oh I they'll took. do that okay oh, they offered quite a lot but I knew to be smart about it that I would have to pay it back plus mm-hmm. interest so um I did everything that I could to keep my borrowing to a minimum and then um I applied for a grant um I actually got a really good grant that helped me produce a body of work that I had for my thesis oh okay nice all right, so speaking of your thesis, what was your thesis on? Because I know that ties into you and um, your first year exhibiting at the PMA. I think there was a lot of that work. Absolutely, or just your yes. work, like your current work. Okay, so go into that. Tell me about that. Okay, um, yeah. so when I first started grad school, I was completely unfamiliar with 3D technology. Um, so going into it as a grad student, you don't necessarily learn it from the ground up. You kind of just like learn everything at once and you have to find your way of working with it. So I had to think both about 
um, my conceptual approach that I was going to do for my thesis and then what the body of work was and everything sort of clicked together because I knew I wanted to focus on my hearing loss because that gave me a really unique perspective of what sound might be like or how I perceive sound differently. And so for those who are listening, we haven't really introduced that um, aspect of this, but you do tell me about your hearing loss. Like how much can you actually hear, et cetera? Sure. Um, so I was born with a bilateral sensory neural hearing loss. And what that means is both sides um, are affected. My left side is actually worse than my right side. It's a profound to severe or severe to profound hearing loss, while my right side is a mild to severe hearing loss. Mm-hmm. With hearing aids, um, I can hear quite a lot because it amplifies um, all of the sound. However, because it's a sensory neural hearing loss, there are things that I can't understand the way that other people hear it. So my cilia hairs are underdeveloped. And this is a genetic trait that runs in my family. So my mom is also hard of hearing, and she knew to have me tested the day I was born, and I started wearing hearing aids right away. Um, So I was raised with a lot of support, um, and I was put into mainstream schools because in comparison to the deaf schools, I was doing really well in terms of being able to speak uh, with speech support, of course, but mm-hmm. um, and to be able to hear with the hearing aid. So I was put to mainstream school right after um, I was in a deaf school for a very short time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, because I will say the first time I met you, I, I didn't even realize... I think it was the second time I met you is the when I realized you had a hearing defect because you don't I mean people with hearing loss their speech is a little bit different sometimes um, yeah sometimes and now that I know you and I know you have that hearing loss I can kind of like hear a little but um for the most part no like right. you seem and so that's actually um kind of unfortunate sometimes because people will either not realize at all or even if they know um, they don't always remember and won't look at me directly um, or uh, can get really um, impatient sometimes if I ask what a lot now Mm -hmm. I was raised this way so I think that I kind of compensate really well but what I mean by it's unfortunate is that people don't see me as a deaf person. So more and more I am identifying myself as a deaf person rather than hard of hearing, just so that it's really emphasized that um, I don't hear the way that other people hear. Yeah, because it's easy to forget. I mean, five minutes ago I was showing you my apartment and I'm like talking with you. Yeah, (laughs) and it's okay Facing the other way from you. Yeah. Yeah, you're gracious with your patience. So thank you. Thanks. Um, Okay, so we were talking about your work, your the body of work, your thesis work that you're making in your MFA. And that was based around your hearing. So keep going. I cut you off. Sure. So um, the really interesting thing is that when I was an undergrad, I was still working the same way as when I was a grad student. I really am interested in having a single piece and exploring what I can do with it. So um, when I was an undergrad, it was with steel and it was a simple geometric shape. And then I was building off of that and creating three-dimensional form. And then as a graduate student, I was using the computer. So I would model a single form once and then I would array it, repeat it as many times as I could. And I created um, sort of a formula to the way that I was approaching and producing my pieces. Um, And basically the way that the pieces looked and the way that I had them um, overlapping reminded me of sound and reminded me of when I'm in a noisy environment with all the sound overlapping, me having to pay really close attention to what I'm hearing and to put context into everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got really excited and uh, I really love playing around. That's uh, what I like to do the most is to be an experimental sort of studio artist to really have the time to play and see what are the possibilities in CAD, computer-aided design, lets you do that without wasting materials or um, having real setbacks, except for time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was something that I took to really quickly once I figured out how to work with Rhino. Yeah, you're not going to like get a piece almost at the final stage and then burn it on your last solder seam. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, right, done. right, that can and happen. Then you cry and then you get over it and yeah, you move absolutely. on. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so then moving on from that, well, first of all, what, were you married when you were in grad school? I was not. Oh, okay. But it was the same boyfriend that you're married to now? Yeah. So we were together for two years before um, I went into grad school. And we had been friends through my last year as a senior at Rochester. But he was still living here in Philadelphia and I was in Rochester. Um, so we mm-hmm. spoke on the phone a lot. We had a really good friendship. Um, mm-hmm. And then he stuck with me through grad school. I barely saw him. But uh, <laughs> he was very supportive. And um, we got married about two years after I finished grad school. Oh, good. Okay. So... So then when you finished grad school, it was in Philadelphia. Yes. And did you move somewhere else for any time being, or have you just stayed here? I've stayed here. Okay. How did you, 
how did the transition go from grad school to uh, real life, as I like to say? Yeah. Um, I think it went really well because I was given a lot of opportunities to work at Temple. Um, I also ended up working at Towson University because of the people I knew from Temple. Okay. Um, so I did the adjunct lifestyle for about um, two, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was all really accessible being in Philadelphia. So I continued to live where I was already living. We were living there for four years um, before we decided to move. Um, so because of grad school, I feel like I expanded my network of community within the jewelry field. Yeah. And I love Philadelphia for that reason. There's so many amazing people here and it's um, accessible to get to other places like Towson or um, other parts of New Jersey or something. Not that I've taught there, but you know, yeah. I could teach maybe at um, some of the other surrounding universities. So bridging from grad school uh, into real life uh, has actually been really great. Yeah. And where is your studio at? Um, I've always kept a studio in the basement of where I'm living. Nice. Um, so it continues to be that. My dream is to one day have it above ground in a beautiful room <laughs> with some plants, hopefully, if I can keep them alive. Natural really sunlight. At. Natural sunlight, yes. <laughs> Maybe um, not that musty smell. Yeah, no. I don't want it. Like, oh my God, I've had two floods so far in the places that I've lived. Um, oh. This time I didn't have anything affected, thank God. But uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's a cost-effective way you can put it in the basement and then there you go yeah yeah i mean i love having my studio right there Mm because i work it whenever i get a chance to which can um sometimes like a month will go by and i won't get a chance but um other times like i have a weekend open and i spend all weekend in my studio Mm -hmm. okay and then so what is your current profession you said you adjuncted for a little while do you have a full-time job right now i have a full-time job right now um so uh right before i did the pma actually i got my job at the university of University of the Arts as a shop supervisor for the medals and jewelry program. Okay. And what is a shop supervisor? I basically manage the facilities and support the faculty. Um, I also sell uh, inventory to the students out of our resale uh, and manage the schedule, keep up with the equipment, place orders. Um, I keep the place running as smoothly as I can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, With that kind of job, is it MFA required or what kind of? Mm -hmm. Um, It is not MFA required, actually. Um, However, they have had, uh, even now, there's a lot of people with their master's degrees that have the positions as shop supervisors, which I think is really important. Had I gotten this job um, after graduating from RIT, it would have been a really great job. But I don't think that I had the experience or the know-how at that point. Um, I really got more um, understanding working in welding shops, uh, working at the Philadelphia Sculpture Gym, mm-hmm. um, being in different facilities. Uh, so it was like a culmination of grad school and post-grad school that prepared me for the job I currently have. You mentioned the Sculpture Gym. When I was looking at moving here last year, I was like, oh, this place looks great, like it's a amazing. community area and studio rental. And then they closed. Yeah, I'm really sad. That, that was closed. really sad. Sounds mm-hmm. like it was a really great, valuable Yeah, again, like here. if that had been established right after I got at RIT, that would have mm-hmm. been an amazing opportunity to have joined them right then Um, I actually helped out a lot uh, when I finished up grad school and then I was working there as well I was teaching classes helping them to do their uh, renovate their facilities I was um I forget what they called us exactly like a crew member or a monitor Um, so I did that for a year oh and are you really happy at uh, you are it's like yeah yeah oh definitely I think it's a great job um I will say like the pay, which is why like having a master's degree, um, and I think that people should have a master's degree only because you have more intent. And I, actually, I shouldn't say that. Um, there are a lot of people with experience. Yeah. Um, but you need a lot of experience to run this kind of job because it's so multifaceted. Yeah. Um, but that's what I like. I mean, I like uh, having kind of different day-to-day um, responsibilities. Um, I love the community. Uh, I get mm-hmm. to continue to see the faculty teach and learn or reinforce what I know or see somebody else teach a different style Mm -hmm. Um, I get to keep meeting the students who uh, are full of creativity and excitement so I I do really love my job there is it full-time it is full-time and I have access to the facilities um, so it's been and they were great when I did get accepted into the Philadelphia Museum of Art craft show Mm -hmm. Um, they were incredibly supportive for both years when I was doing it nice Mm -hmm. well that's good sounds like you're in a good spot yeah Um, well you do have your MFA do you ever want do you think you want to teach full-time in the future like are you one of those people constantly on the hustle for professorship um i have taken a break from sort of pursuing the full-time teaching jobs uh the one thing i have to say is i'm not really crazy about the idea of moving from city to city to build up that um kind of 
full-time teaching you know like a tenure track which i heard is kind of like a dying thing i would ideally love to have that sort of job um however i know how competitive it is and um uh from from all of my experiences putting in applications and, and trying to get some of these jobs already and knowing what my peers have done to get some of the jobs which uh, is amazing, um, yeah. but it's also really tiring. So right now my focus is being the shop supervisor and continuing my studio practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am teaching here and there, but um, nothing uh, really serious. And we touched on your studio practice a little bit, but you predominantly your work is 3D printed then, right? Uh, I would say I'm still doing a lot of bench work. Uh, mm-hmm. I've moved away from sculpture. I was really into welding a lot, which unfortunately I haven't done in a long time. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, even now, it's been a little while since I've been on the computer. I need to get back into that this summer. Um, So do you have, I mean, I know I have a full-time day job and then I hustle as a contemporary jeweler on my nights and weekends and, mm -hmm. you know, stock galleries and et cetera. Do you do the same? Do you? Absolutely. It's a big hustle. So uh, in addition to my job as a full-time shop supervisor at the University of the Arts, I'm also doing part-time polishing work for a jeweler who does a lot of craft shows. I've been working with her since January. Wow. Um, And she is thrilled with the work that I've been doing for her. So I think it'll continue for a while. And -hmm. then I'm also picking up on teaching jobs whenever I can and doing my studio practice. So I feel like I am hustling all the time, which is why putting in applications and, and stuff like that is... Something I'm not focused on right now. Yeah. But do you sell a lot of your work? Like, would you say you have a production line or do you kind of make work for when you have a specific event coming up? I would say I, ha- I make work for a specific event. Um, I do have an inventory of work and I want to work on getting it into stores. Um, that's something I'm still developing and working on a new website. Yeah. So, but I would say more of uh, the sort of work I like to do right now in my studio is smaller projects when I have the time, mm-hmm. um, which is building upon a production line and, uh, and then larger scale pieces if I get the time, but it's more uh, when something's coming up. So right now I have a collaboration in the works, so I'm putting a lot of effort into getting funding for that and um, working with the person from afar because she actually lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh. Um, so Anybody I know? Uh, I don't think so, but she's on Craft House. Uh, Lisa Rich. Hmm, don't know her. Okay, she's also a deaf artist, um, and she oh. did an amazing show called Invisible Visible. Check it out if you can on uh, Craft House. Okay. Yeah, it's I like a, mm-hmm. um, When you were saying raising funds, so it sounds like you're kind of a savvy woman in that sense. When you say raising funds, are you writing grants to cover material costs and et cetera? Yeah, um, I act. I actually really like uh, doing grant proposals. Um, as I said before, I got a grant when I was uh, a grad student. It was a really nice grant, too. Um, I also applied for a competition that has, uh, years ago, that has um, provided me with a lot of opportunities since then. Uh, so I really get motivated to do sort of those sort of things, and I like that it's like you have to do this, this, and this, and then once you get it all done, you send it in. Um, so, yeah, every time that there's a grant that I can apply for or some other sort of um, exhibition that I can apply for. I'm doing those. I want to get an artist on here. Shout out to perceivedvalue at gmail.com <laughs> or gmail. If you are someone that I could speak to that um, kind of specializes in grants, because when I get online and I just like type grants for artists, I mean, it's a wormhole and whatever. I'm completely overwhelmed and then I give up within five minutes. Yeah. Um, but where do you predominantly see these? Like, cafe or juried art services um yeah so the cafe uh call for entries um mm-hmm. i've done a lot of research on that i also look at in liquid website um snag okay. website for anything i can find um it is difficult to find grants um the yeah. one that i saw in grad school was posted within the school mm-hmm. um and then uh the competition that i just spoke about was actually in call for entry um okay yeah, so, but it is really hard because even now I'm trying to do research and some of these things were dated back to like 2007 or like 2011 or whatever and um, the websites haven't been updated so you can't apply for anything. It's not kind of like an annual thing. So I will yeah. say the research is very difficult um, if I think of more because I definitely have a, I have a go-to list of a lot okay. of things that I check out. Okay, mm-hmm. thanks. Um, so you're here because you well I met you this past year and we did talk about you having exhibited at the Philadelphia Museum of Art craft show I think in the conversation I had said that I was thinking about applying and I wasn't sure and you're the one that brought up the emerging artists um category because I think it was a 2015 is that when you first was 
an emerging artist. Okay. And then you exhibited at the, um, so it's the Philadelphia Museum of Art Craft Show, but I'm going to shorten it back up to PMA. So if you guys hear PMA, you know what we're talking about. <laughs> um, the PMA you exhibited last year as well. I did. And you were just a regular good old artist in it. Yes. Okay. So I I applied and I did get accepted. So Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I am very excited. I am going to be an emerging artist this year. And so instantly I was like, I need to get Ria on the podcast and talk about this because it'll give such a good perspective because right now I am nervous freaking out a little bit Mm -hmm. I did one of those things where how you kind of said you like applying for grants because it gives you something to do and a kind of goal and having moved to Philly and kind of reestablishing myself after a residency I was like apply for this you don't know if you're gonna get it you're not ready for it but at least it'll give me like a goal to work towards Mm -hmm. not ready in the sense that I've never had a booth or anything like that so I just feel a little um anxious about Mm -hmm. that because it's a big deal you're it's a lot to take on it's kind yeah you're kind of if for those listening that's not really familiar if you've been to a craft show or if you haven't, so most craft shows, the American Craft Council's really um, predominant craft show. PMA has one. There's the Smithsonian Craft Show. And you're given a 10 by 10 space and you create your own booth. And so that booth needs to reflect your aesthetic, your style. You want them to walk in and instantly get a feel for who you are as an artist. And um, you also want them drawn into it. You know, it's like... absolutely. Um, fly trap for you. Yeah. Um, so, and I think it's a big part of it because you can apply with your work and taking on a booth is a whole other thing. Absolutely. And they can be really minimal. You can have drapes for walls and then like your banner that says your name and then a table with your jewelry on it. Or some people build like gallery style walls and install these beautiful shelving units and spend thousands of dollars sometimes getting it. And you know, it's one of those things where a craft show, um, Philadelphia's, I think it's November 9th through 17th. I have it up on my notes. Um, you know, you're doing this all for about four or five days Mm -hmm. and then you're going to either put it in storage until next year or until the next show. Right. Um, depending on if some people make their full-time living off of craft shows. I think I'm going to be a dabbler as I like to refer to it, where I'm doing the PMA, because it's in Philadelphia, so my my overhead is low. I don't have to travel. I don't have to get a hotel room. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have to rent a car or a truck, and I don't have to ship a booth. Um, But, you know, there's craft shows all over the country, and there's people who, um, one of my good friends who I adore, Ashley Buchanan, I mean, I think last year she did 17 shows. And if you break that down, that's like two a month average plus. Like, it's... She like, hustles and she yeah. goes all over and she she kills it too. So that's amazing. Yeah, shout out to those people that do this full time. Yeah, yeah. I'm it trying to do. Yeah, I'm trying to do one and I'm already overwhelmed. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you on that. Um, okay, so when you applied in 2015, mm-hmm. why did you decide to apply? Uh, because my friend Sarah Gallo convinced me to do it. Um, <laughs> so Sarah was a grad student and I was an adjunct professor at Temple. And we were just having a conversation and she said, had you ever considered doing it? And I had gone to the PMA many times, mm-hmm. but I had really never considered doing it because it did seem like such a big deal and a huge um, investment. Mm-hmm. But she pointed out all the reasons to do it, which you actually said many of them. It's mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. You don't have to worry about hotels. You don't have to worry about uh, extreme travel or flights or you know shipping. Um, so it all made a lot of sense. And I lived at Fishtown at the time, which is like a 10-minute drive to the convention center. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I said, yeah, absolutely, it made sense. And then I also had the body of work already. So I did apply with my thesis uh, images. Mm-hmm. Um, And when I was accepted, I did spend some time coming up with some production work. But uh, the bulk of the things I had on display were pieces that I made for my thesis work. And I I printed a few more new pieces. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that because I got into the show, it pushed me to do even more work. And I I actually um, tapped into some stuff that I'm still working on now that I'm very excited about, about. And had I not gotten accepted into the show, I might not have pursued it at that time or, Mm -hmm. you know... Um, so I, uh, you know, it was, it was a good experience, but, um, I didn't think I was actually going to get in. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, and when I did, uh, I did have to hustle, um, yeah. and I had to pull it all together. But I was really fortunate to have an amazing uh, community of people that supported and helped me. Yeah, and I can relate to you with that thinking, saying you made some work that you might not have if you hadn't applied. Mm-hmm. I actually, I, I, I was a core fellow at Penland, so I refer to that as my quote unquote undergrad for me and I created a production line of jewelry there that has done well like it's in galleries I love it it's simple um it has a great price point but I feel kind of stuck and you know it's like if you had started a production line while you were at RIT if you were still making that you know you you want to move on and so this applying to this was kind of my way of uh giving myself a swift kick to the ass to Mm -hmm make a new body of work and yeah. it's not a new body of work but it's not a body of work I've put in production like this before right you are you're pushing yourself yeah yeah you're making progress because in one way or other you have to you have to appeal to people and then you also want to be excited about what you're putting out there yeah you're representing yourself yeah and I'm also and so that's another thing too um when thinking about why you apply as well um well, it's because, yes, I want to push myself to make more work, and you relate to that. But in the other hand, too, is exposure. Absolutely. Because if I want this new work out there, and I, I want certain galleries to want me to have their work, you know, my mm-hmm. work there. And my other work was, it's great, and it is contemporary and handmade, but um, there's certain galleries, like Gallery Loop, you know? Like, I, I could never see that other work in there. And I'm hoping to start this moving in the direction of, maybe getting towards those types of galleries. Mm-hmm. Did you think about that when you were there, like the collectors that were coming or what kind of exposure? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of those, that was like the biggest thing that I wanted, um, or I at least wanted to know uh, if that was a good route for me to take. Um, unfortunately, that didn't really come to fruition. Uh, I think that it's still something that could happen because I still have um, contact with some of the people that I made, but mm-hmm. nothing happened yet. But um, I was hoping that either local galleries or um, other galleries around the country might be interested in my work. Um, and I was approached by people. Uh, there was a lot of buzz and excitement when I did it the first year. Because I also had a, um, an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer. I was going to say, you were like the sweetheart of the, the press there. Oh, Yeah, well, thanks. because, I mean, that's a big deal to get a whole article I, based yeah, around Yeah, it was work. really amazing. And I think that it really helped me out the first year quite a lot. Yeah. And, um, and I was thrilled about it. Well, I think that's really, uh, this is my first craft show, so I'm kind of learning as I go, but there is a press packet. So we, and Philly asked us, I think the 26th, we had to have it to them, but they asked if you had a unique or special story about yourself and then like what galleries are you in or et cetera, what your local newspaper is. So artists who are, if you're coming from New Mexico, you know, maybe the Philly craft show is going to do some kind of, um, advertisement or something in it Mm -hmm. I think that's really great it feels like they really do a lot on their end I agree to put the word out about it absolutely Mm -hmm. and so the article was based around your work and how it kind of came from your hearing loss and your MFA Mm -hmm. Um, so when you did the show do you think you got direct sales from that I definitely did Um, so I had a few people who said that they specifically came to the show to see me um, and they did buy like uh, some of the smaller pieces I Mm -hmm. also um, the picture uh, in the article, I'm holding one of my pieces. Somebody came specifically to the show, sought out that piece, and purchased it that morning that the article came out. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was my biggest sale. So Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah, thank you. I was, uh, it was amazing. It was actually a little too quick, though, and... Um, I was I was so sad to see that piece go because it's yeah, definitely one it of my favorites. Yeah, because it was kind of a showstopper or whatever for the yeah. weekend. Um, but yeah, but it was, I was so thrilled to have done that, and it was my biggest sale too. Um, and it, you know, and I could trace that to yeah. having done that article. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean social media and so it's it's hard as artists because it feels like we have so much going on we wear all the hats we're making the work we're promoting ourselves but at the end of the day like the promotion it pays off you can't always see it I mean Mm -hmm. it's fun or interesting to hear you say this person saw this picture of it and came that day to buy it Mm -hmm. because you can't always directly (laughs) like link it like that sure yeah um but that's pretty incredible that you can um I don't know did we mention so application is due by it was due by april 1st this past year so it's typically kind of like a spring ish kind of application deadline mm-hmm. and because the show's in november so that would make sense um application fee was fifty dollars 
pretty standard. Mm-hmm. Um, 75 if you're running late. That so. was me the first year. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Um, it's okay because I hadn't considered it. Somebody told me and, yeah. you know, it already passed a regular deadline, but I hopped on it. Yeah, I remember like 1130 turning in my application my fr- my poor friend Megan was like let's go to dinner and I'm like sure I just have to do this one thing turned into us on my couch for like an hour takes you um, longer than you think yeah but I was just like I'm not paying that $25 late fee oh like, yeah <laughs> so um so then you get in and then I found out typically you find out about oh, what we're in June so May yeah, it's either, it's March, it's June 1st, but like either mid-May um, to June 1st, you'll find out. To June 1st, you find out. Yeah. And I got the email and found out. And then um, by July 1st, you yeah. have to have your booth fee in. Yes. Um, and that's going to, that's my next point on my notes. I was mm-hmm. like, we're going to have a whole section on booth fees because that is a big deal. Yeah. Um, so maybe we should also break it down as an emerging artist. Um there are 10 artists that are chosen as emerging and that can be any medium. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're up against everybody else that's applying in that regard. And I think for the rest of the show, you specify I'm a glass artist, I'm a jeweler. I'm sure they try to keep like an equal amount or... They actually um, do say that they they don't have to. Oh, really? They don't um, think about it it as like a balance? They they pick and choose as they want. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. so if you do get chosen as emerging artist, though, the biggest benefit is, A, you get called an emerging artist, and I think that creates some extra buzz around you or excitement. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is that your booth fee, you get a special booth fee. So remember, um, listeners, when we broke it down, you get this 10 by 10 space. Um, not all spaces are created equal. So you can have a corner space, which some people like because you have two sides of your booth that are open to the air and um a lot of people get really deep into it, like foot traffic, like where they're going to be seen the best, or they design their ba- their booth around a corner, so they always have to have a corner. Mm-hmm. Um, a woman I worked for did the same. So with us, our booth fee is a thousand dollars, and that's good. I think that's good. I've never done any of the ACC shows or anything like that, so um, I can't compare. Right. Personally, I had a little bit of a panic attack when I was writing the check because $1,000 seems like such a gigantic sum to me. Sure. Um, but just when I was thinking about it, I lucked out because I have mother, I have money from when my grandfather passed and it's supposed to go to a house or something like that or to paying my booth feed in my first craft school experience <laughs> or craft yeah. show experience. Um, how did you do that your first year? Um, so I did a GoFundMe. Uh, once oh. I knew that I was accepted into the PMA, um, I decided that I really did need some financial help to do this because I really didn't have enough money. Um, and I have never, I ended up taking out a credit card, but uh, I had never done a credit card, really wanted to stay away from that. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people crowdsource for all different sorts of reasons. And I decided on GoFundMe because there's no time limit. There's no goal that you have to reach. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just seemed pretty easy. So I did spend quite a lot of time putting together um, my uh, kind of like news blast or, or, you know, the the contents of the GoFundMe page. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was really remarkable, the support that I got from people, some people I didn't know, other people I did know, but I haven't been in contact with for a long time. Um, It was just amazing. You know, people uh, contributed what they could, and um, it did help me out quite a bit. So is GoFundMe like Kickstarter where you... um you kind of have rewards for donation levels? No, so that is a, that's the reason I chose GoFundMe is that with Kickstarter, you do have um, things that people, if they donate a certain amount, they get sort of different things. And yeah. again, I didn't I knew that the, my focus was going to be the PMA, doing the show. Yeah. So I didn't want to be tied down to, oh, I'll ship out something yeah. um, or I'll give you a discount on something or whatever. Yeah. Um, so GoFundMe is like you set a goal. And then people contribute uh, and you keep it open, I think, for as long as you want. I don't think there's a deadline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even if you don't meet your goal, which in Kickstarter is one of the condition, yeah. um, you still get the money from people. Okay. So yeah, so Kickstarter, um, a lot of people do raise quite a lot of money and exceed their uh, goal. Yeah. But if they don't meet their goal, they don't get any of the money that they raise. Yeah. So um, I just 
didn't want to gamble with that and just decided to do GoFundMe. And they take, I think, like a 20% of what you get. And then there are also fees for having the money deposited into whatever account that you set up. So it's not the full amount of what you raise that you will be getting. Yeah, but it's it's pretty close to um, it. Yeah, it's pretty close. Okay. Um, How much did you raise? Uh, $2,000. How much were you trying to raise? Uh, $4,000. Okay. Yeah. Um, so 2000 that would have covered your fee and then the rest kind of just went to overhead for inventory and booth fees. Yeah, I wanted to put it towards, you know, what I was going to build for the booth because um, I knew that I had to completely do that. And then the sort of promotion material like postcards, um, some new pieces, the production line that I didn't it didn't exist yeah. before um that sort of thing um the other thing i thought was interesting that i read on there is that emerging artists we can share a booth yes you can did you um, see and anybody I did try and do that there oh, weren't any try. other artists yeah um there weren't any other artists who um wanted to share a booth because 10 by 10 is still really small it is and then if you do want to go on and do anything else um you'll already want that 10 by 10 space yeah like you know how to outfit it um i also took some time once i was accepted to think about realistically doing the show so i didn't ask other uh emerging artists right away it was yeah. um more like uh maybe two or three weeks after i was accepted mm-hmm. so everybody had decided they were doing a full booth and i, I think it was better though because it's yeah. still cramped once it's you have people cramped. on your booth like even five people on yourself in a booth it's cramped yeah, yeah. um and my friend Roberta got in. She is going to be emerging artist for ceramics this year, which oh, awesome. is kind of fun. And she had texted me the other day, hey, can I re- like request to be near you? So you can mm-hmm. request to be near people, uh-huh. which would be so great because I'm going to be a nervous wreck anyway. So then I have like a buddy next to me. Yeah. If I have to go to the bathroom mm-hmm. or get my fifth cup of coffee, we'll have each other's backs. Yeah. And just so you know, too, the PMA also provides that for you so that you can um, have somebody come and sit at your booth if nobody else is available to do it so you just have to like let them know that you'll need somebody at a certain time or something like that yeah and i mean the last time the first time i ever went to pma last year um was for my friend eric silva do you know eric i don't he's one of those people that's done the shows for years and he kills it Mm -hmm. like he doesn't even have i have all these things like i've assisted a lot of artists and booths like they walk in it's kind of like retail you know people want to be acknowledged like can i help you etc eric is just so cool and just kind of like almost a loop and he just sells so much and awesome. it's, it's like doesn't even look like he's trying i'm like <laughs> oh, good lord um but he had me come in and help him last year mm-hmm. so i got to experience the show i got to go to the opening night mm-hmm. um i think that is a really cool part the pma does like the opening night gala yeah, so much fun oh my gosh everybody gets dressed up yeah. i mean i'm pretty excited about that yeah yeah it's an amazing part i have to say too from other things that i've heard about other craft shows the PMA does treat the artist really well. So um, yeah. even having snacks mm-hmm. in the break area is mm-hmm. something that not every show has because the woman I'm working for did the Baltimore show yeah. and it was really expensive to buy food right down in that area um, and they don't have time to leave. They have to stay with their booth. So um, there are, you have to bring your own snacks. So I thought that that was really great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the opening night is absolutely amazing. Yeah, because I assisted somebody for the Smithsonian show, and I do not remember it being nearly as fun as no. this, like, last year. I mean, you guys, there is literally a mashed potato bar. Yeah. You grab a martini glass, yeah. and they're like, do you want white potatoes or purple potatoes? Purple potatoes. And then it's just, like, every topping you could imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah, it I was felt good. good. And then, like, you'd walk around, and I was like, okay, mashed potato part. But then you'd walk down another aisle, and there was, like, a whole other buffet of food. Like, mm-hmm. it was pretty incredible. Um, and then there's awards mm-hmm. and things like that, like awards for boot display, et cetera. Is there an award out of the emerging artists where they pick, like, there the top? Is. Oh, there yeah. is. Uh-huh. Um, oh, so okay. um, the first year I did it, I'm pretty sure Peter got um, Peter. Peter Park. He did uh, like wood furniture. Um, he okay. got an award for his booth. Oh. Um, I don't think it was a booth display um, yeah. award. There might be like one or two awards for emerging artists because I think somebody else got one too, like Alexander Lozier. I'm pretty oh, sure. Oh, I do remember because I'm friends with her. Saw yeah. on Facebook. I was like, get it, girl. Yeah, her yeah. stuff's amazing. Um, and Peter's too. Uh, but so Peter, because he got that award, he instantly got into the show the following mm-hmm. year and the booth fee is covered. 
What? Yeah. I want that award. Right. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so yeah. So really, like, make it dazzle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gonna try. Gonna try. Um. So th- and then that's another thing. It's like we're talking about. You know, a thousand dollars seems like a lot, but. Th- the other booths for the artists, like like saying the next year, they range from twelve fifty to nineteen fifty. Right, and that that depends on the size. So again, if yeah. you stick with the ten by ten, it's only the twelve fifty. So yeah. um, you know, it's two fifty that you're saving as an emerging artist, which still helps quite a lot. Two hundred fifty dollars yeah. is mm-hmm. you know, it's a, a bunch of work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you know when you're thinking about that investment that you're going into there's some other fees that are associated with it i was i read it in the contract i couldn't find it to get the exact number but you pay for electricity i yes. believe um i've assisted people at shows where you have to pay for the wi-fi but it's included yes it is at the pma which is really nice because so great if you're taking credit cards on square or whatever and you're using your data for four or five days sure that's gonna add up or if you're in a huge convention center filled with thousands of people your wi-fi is not going to be your your data is not going to be that great anyway so um that's pretty exciting Mm -hmm. um the biggest thing about the booth that scares me is the lighting because right so my i was really fortunate to borrow lighting for both years from a friend of mine um because that in itself is a big investment yeah um so if you can you know uh, reach out to people that you can borrow things from if they don't have a show going on which um you know maybe if somebody in grad school which is was the situation for the friend of mine um but yeah uh the the convention center is pretty dark if you don't have good lighting and it is a super important part of your booth design yeah i mean any show any craft yes, show i've ever show, walked sure. you walk in and you see a dark booth and you're like yeah oh, sorry guys like <laughs> you yeah. need to put shine some light on some subject um so then you borrowed lights and I've had some people reach out to me too, which is exciting. Like this woman I was working for has done the show circuit for a long time and she's offered. So it is, it's one of those things where you just need, when you're first doing it, you just need to really reach out to your community mm-hmm. and it's kind of incredible yeah. how much people are just willing to help you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially um, if it's felt, your first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I felt really well supported, even just sitting down with people and just having people answer questions um, and the sort of things that people would offer was really great too. Um, my mother-in-law created my drapes too. I can't even believe oh, she did that for me. What? because. And I heard that drapes have to be like fireproof or specific. Oh. Is that a thing? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Um, <laughs> they do have drapes that you can rent, um, oh, okay. but they're usually like really dirty and not very nice. Yeah, um, you don't want to do that. This was something that like my mother-in-law just like decided she was going to do for me. I never asked her, and it was a huge amount of work, but they came out so beautifully. They're all hand-painted um, fabric, uh, and that because she's a fabric designer. What? I can't even imagine what I would have had to pay somebody to do that for me, but it really made my booth... Uh, so much nicer you know um, yeah because i was lurking you online trying to find <laughs> trying to find like a picture of your booth or whatever but i did i saw some of the graphics so i guess i haven't even asked you did you have hard walls you obviously had drapes i had the drapes you had the drapes mm-hmm. okay cool yeah. yeah and they were like and the designs on them reflected your 3d printed work yeah it was really funny because some people were like oh did you find the drapes and then you know you were inspired to make your work and i just <laughs> thought that was a really funny question um but yeah so i basically gave her a flat image of the sort of designs that were incorporated into my work and she just blew it up and silk screened the entire thing hand like each one is hand painted oh my gosh uh, yeah you couldn't have afforded that i know never That's incredible. that would have been like i mean she's a professional artist like really well respected in her community so having yeah. had you know not have known her and sought her out i'm sure it would have been like five thousand dollars or something like that for yeah. all that work oh yeah she's amazing happy. and then she even said if i if i did get accepted again this year she was going to do entirely new drapes for me which i thought was like crazy because i'd only done it the two years but we had decided if i did get in uh which i did not this year which um but we were going to have one accent wall where there was like a different fabric but the same design oh yeah so i would have spruced it up a little bit that way but anyway the fact that she did that was just really incredible it's all about your community yeah uh, yeah exactly um so thinking about cost, uh, you're looking at about a th- so you're looking at thousand dollars somewhere between twelve hundred for fees, etc. Um, I would I would make it more like thirteen hundred to fifteen hundred because okay. you have um, about a hundred for the pipes that oh, yeah. you need, um, like the structure. Shout out to Maria Ify. She said she says she might have some pipes I can borrow. Oh good! <laughs> oh that's amazing! Yeah yeah because yeah. yeah. that you don't get to keep or anything. Um, yeah. yeah so i can't even believe how much they cost um and then the electricity about uh 200 
Okay. And when you went into this, did you do it thinking, I have to make every penny I get back? No. Or did you think, maybe I'll sell one thing? Like, were you like... Because some people aren't doing shows just to be like, I did a show. Like, people make their livelihood from here. So Yeah. Well, so what I had been told um, from so many people was that rarely will somebody make a profit um, and you're lucky if you break even. And it can take three to five years to establish yourself in these shows. And they're talking about the people who do it all over the place. So that was just crazy to me because um, even just doing it for one year was hard to think about, to think about all the expenses and everything. Um, I decided to do it and I knew there was a chance I might not do well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was hoping that I could sell at least one big piece. It wouldn't have covered everything, but it would have been a substantial sale. And then I was really focusing on the production line. Mm-hmm. Um, however, my quick group of friends told me, uh, not to go crazy in that aspect, just because you don't know how it's going to go. You don't know how people are going to respond. And I thought that was really good advice. Um, so the second year I expanded even more into the production aspect, but the first year I was putting out my big pieces, having some smaller works that people could afford. Um, and it was actually really interesting The earrings that I had, people were buying just a 3d printed parts and not the studs that I had because they're earring sleeves. They can be mixed with any kind of stud earring and oh. everyone loved it. It was like amazing. So I actually sold more than I had, um, because people were asking for me to send them later so I did have some orders to fill afterwards so that that went really well and that was it was good that I had a big piece sell and then I had another piece that I did drop the price but it was still a really nice um amount it was like a $500 piece so I was really happy about that yeah Yeah. um and she was also somebody that had donated to my GoFundMe and she had never met me before so yeah it was amazing um and then I sold the production work so all in all like I almost broke even but um, I didn't think I was going to make a profit. I was doing it for exposure and to see if I liked doing it because I never thought I was going to like doing um, craft shows sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm kind of with you right there. It's like, I just really want to break even. Mm-hmm. I don't want to pack up everything and be like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Right. Um, the other big part of it for me that I think I'm the most anxious about is just understanding what kind of inventory you need. Right. Because in the contract, you know, yes. we're signing this contract as artists for this and there's things we have to, to do. And one of them is specifically said, yes. A, you have to be there the whole time. Mm-hmm. And B, um, you have to have enough inventory for the whole show. Yes. So did anybody give you advice on that or how did you go about that so that was um that's like in my gofundme thing that was like a reason i was trying to raise money to do this was to make sure that i was going in there prepared Mm -hmm. um and uh so yeah you just you need to have a lot but you can also tell people that you can ship them things after or take some orders too they're not going to stop you from doing that but the show isn't a focus on wholesale yeah so um, you are directly selling to the customer. So I would make sure that you have, you know, if you have several uh, series, I would make sure that you have, um, I don't know, maybe like 10 pieces in each available. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, my experience isn't so much in production. Yeah. Um, so and I, I don't like, know if I'm the best to give that <laughs> advice. And I like to say, like, I was raised by a production jeweler because I predominantly apprentice and she was production. So mm-hmm. for me, I have a hard time making one of a kind work or going bigger because I'm like, well, you know, I can make 20 of these in this amount of time and this profit from this. Right. Um, so I'm actually pushing myself with this show. I'm not doing what I've always done, which is design something, make 20 of them. Mm-hmm. Like I am just going to make work for the next four months and like of course there'll be some stud stud earrings and smaller things that i'm going to um repeat because i like to call it they're like your bread and butter Mm -hmm. you know because some people just come to the show and you know they can afford to get into the show and look at all the beautiful things but they don't have a hundred dollars to drop but maybe they have 25 or Mm -hmm. 50. having a good uh range of prices is so good yeah yeah the people that i have seen there who do really well absolutely have that they have you know things that people can just walk away with without sweating about buying um and then there are people who really drop some serious money on big pieces and it's been interesting i've assisted people before where somebody will buy like the cheapest thing right on the first day and then three days later they come back and buy one of your most expensive necklaces Uh so it's really interesting in that regard too where I remember this like great American life story where they interviewed a car salesman that the the most successful car salesman was like, you want to know why I do so well? It's because I assume everybody that walks on this lot is a millionaire. 
You know, you don't like don't judge people by what they look like or try to profile like, oh, this person's definitely going to buy something. You know, mm-hmm. like, um, I mean, it's all kind of the retail mentality about it all. Mm-hmm. Not the fun part. No. Yeah, it's my weak point. Yeah. Because um, I even just uh, I ran into a woman. I was helping my mother-in-law. Uh, she was giving a lecture out in Fraser and there was a woman that I recognized and she recognized me. So uh, we were figuring out where we knew each other from and it, it came about that she had visited me at the PMA. Um, and she said, you know, I talked to you for like 45 minutes to like 50 minutes or so, and I didn't buy anything from you. And I was like, yeah, I had awesome. a lot of that. Um, which is great. <laughs> you know, talking to people is amazing. And I got to meet so yeah. many people. And I would say the reason that I actually enjoyed doing the PMA show was because I was promoting my concept and my experiences with hearing loss. It wasn't just about selling the item. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not a great seller. So I did let a lot of opportunities slip by, which um, I was hoping to get better at, you know, by doing it again and again. Yeah. Your first year, do, do you think you did make a big improvement for the second year? Uh, I thought that I did in um, in certain ways, not like in every possible way that I had, you know, hoped. Like I definitely made a lot of to-do lists and had goals. I didn't hit on all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I definitely improved. Um, and so... You did the PMA, did, after the PMA, those first two years that you've done it, have you applied for any different craft shows? Like, I feel like if you apply for the PMA, the Sasonian craft show is kind of on that level. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So I am actually considering applying for the Smithsonian this year. I think mm-hmm. the deadline is August something. Mm-hmm. Um. So when I had actually done, either I had finished the PMA or I had... Uh, just been accepted but they reached out to me oh. uh, the smithsonian were like will you please apply for the show but at that time i hadn't even done the pma show so yeah. i couldn't make that kind of investment like putting out another booth fee like before yeah. knowing whether this show would go well or not um so i'm glad that i didn't at that time but um i am considering it now although i have not made up my mind yet because yeah. it's it's a huge thing to take on do you have friends that you could stay with in dc to cut down on like uh, I don't know off the top of my head. I don't think that I have any friends and family down there, but I can check out Facebook World and see if yeah. anybody is living down I mean, there. That's how, I mean, that's how it goes. I already have somebody that's like, can I stay with you? And I'm like, absolutely. You can oh, stay that's with amazing. Me this next yeah, year. I mean, that helps so much. Mm-hmm. And you'll barely be there, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't even matter. It's like you're, the show hours are so long. It's right. just like you just want somebody to go to dinner with afterwards and then mm-hmm. pass out and yeah. wake up in the morning with. Yeah. Um, so... You had mentioned briefly that you you did apply for this past year. I did. And you did not get in. I did not. And I think that's really interesting because, I mean, well, to be quite honest, everything is arbitrary. Like, every show you apply for, there is a panel of jurors. And mm-hmm. if you don't get into it, it might be because that specific panel didn't like you. And if it would have been different people, et cetera. Sure. Um, and I think that's really interesting because when I walked the show last year, there was one jeweler specifically who is amazing and is like hustles at every show. But she was like, this is my first year getting into the show. And I've been applying over and over again. I have heard a lot of stories like that too. Yeah. Or um, like, Maria Ify, I mentioned her before. We were talking about the show. She had walked the show last year and she did not get in last year, but she had been in the year before. And I think it's the same, like she's done the Smithsonian show. So really the the application process for it, there's a specific panel of jurors each year and it mm-hmm. always there's changes. New, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and I like that. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I could see how it could be really disappointing if you'd done the show a couple years and you didn't get in. Like, how did you feel about that? Like, um, So... My, my genuine feelings about it was, uh, at first, of course, I was a little disappointed and, yeah. you know, was looking forward to doing it. And I can see where it might break up the momentum that I have going for the show or doing this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it was also a relief because yeah. even uh, before I sent in my application, I was still really battling. Should I do this again? Should I not? Last year, um, so my second year doing it, I did not do as well as I did my first year. Oh, shoot. Yeah, I wanted to yeah, ask about that. Yeah, we can definitely talk about that. One of the reasons, now, I don't want to say this is definitely a reason because I don't know, but um, we set up on election day. And then the yeah. result of the election you know, happened. I was there. It was a hard day. Right. A lot of people were really depressed and shocked. And yeah. Um, and I was too. You I know? dropped my latte and I started crying on the street. Yeah. <laughs> the barista gave me another one. I was like, it's a hard day. Yeah. I mean, and so yeah. I don't know if it was that, but I know that some of the other artists were still doing really well. Yeah. Um, 
from what I could observe, those were people who had been there for a really long time and had established their clientele. Um, but overall, like, I don't, I don't know if they weren't doing as well as they have in the past either. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, like, it was, it was rough. I even had some people coming into my booth that wanted to know whether I was a Republican or a Democrat, and I was uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, talking about politics when I'm, tr- I'm trying to sell work. It's a professional. It just be like walking into a gallery and asking the gallery owner their political sure. preferences. Yeah, you know, let's you not go there. Yeah, just don't <laughs> um, do that. So maybe that was one of the reasons. Maybe it wasn't. I really yeah. don't know. Um, so, but I didn't do as well. And so I really had to kind of sit down and think about it. Like, could I do this again? Because I don't make a lot of money and I don't have any kind of savings right now. And it would be a gamble. However, yeah. like I said before, a lot of people have said you need to put in three to five years before you can expect to really do well. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was like 99.3% sure I would do the show if I had gotten accepted. And the one thing is that I was very proud of the new photographs and new work that I had submitted for the show. It still looked similar, but there were new images. So I thought mm-hmm. my application was very strong um, yeah. and I was very excited, but it's fine. You know, I'll, yeah. I, this actually will allow for other opportunities. Like I said, I'm doing a collaboration. Mm-hmm. I definitely could not do that collaboration if I had the expenses of the PMA. So it is opening up other channels yeah. for me to explore. I feel like that's always something is like when you don't get into a show or you don't get an opportunity, for me at least, I always see that something else comes along sure. regardless yeah. so it's like do you think you'll apply next year um sure yeah yeah it's not like a huge application fee and i as i said i really like to apply for a lot of stuff um yeah but maybe i should try a different show a lot of people have been telling me maybe the pma isn't my kind of market it's true because all the shows i mean having gone to an acc show i went to the one in baltimore and been at the PMA, it's a completely different demographic yeah. of people that are coming. Yeah. So you also have to think about that. Like, what demographic does your work cater best to? Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm choosing the PMA for this, like, more one-of-a-kind um, kind of show. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I do think the PMA is a great show. I used to go for years and years. Um, and I will definitely go and check everybody's workout, which I'm really looking forward to. Because when you're there... Had that much time opening night definitely take the opportunity to walk around but okay. um you know so yeah i'll just go back and get time to talk to everybody and really see the whole show yeah oh gosh i can't wait it's gonna be so fun once i get there yeah i'll definitely come and visit you <laughs> once my booth set up then i'm yeah. gonna relax um overall what advice would you give specifically i mean we've covered so much i think this is this is definitely such a great resource if anybody students or anyone that's thinking about doing shows in the future um but what advice would you give okay for me who's going to do the show the first year like what's something that no one really mentioned or you never thought of until you did the show uh so one thing i would say is you will meet so many people um keeping track of who you meet um is I would say really important to do like follow-ups, especially if you say that you will. So one trick that I um, found was really beneficial for me was that if somebody gave me their business card or wrote in my uh, visitor book, mm-hmm. I wrote a note saying what we had talked about or like who they were, where they were from, so that I had context. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's like a whirlwind. When you're there, there's so much activity. You're saying a lot of the same stuff, meeting and seeing so many faces. Um, and so it is exhausting. Make sure that you're well rested um, at night, that you can find a way to unwind. Um, so I have like bedtime tea and, uh, yeah. you know, and things that like, because they're, they're really long days. Also have really good footwear. Yeah. Uh, I like Dantico shoes. Uh, Got my dance goes on yeah, right now. Yeah, they're amazing. So, <laughs> you know, you do have to stand around all day. Um, and then stay hydrated. Yes, definitely stay hydrated and take breaks too. So the first year I really didn't take breaks. And when I tried to, I had some um, students from UArts helping me and friends and family helping me and they would relieve me. But every time I left, I would get text messages saying, somebody's interested, come on back. Yeah. Um, So I I didn't really feel like I could leave my booth very often. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if anything like really like any um, few things like stick out, but um, write to-do list. Take things in stride uh, and definitely know, like, so you'll have what, like five months, four months, like yeah. before the show? Uh, four months. Four months now. Mm-hmm. Um, so pace yourself. Don't um, get too overwhelmed about one thing. Everything will come together. Just, you know, uh, think about everything. Think about the booth design. Um, think about kind of the flow of people moving around your booth. That was something I think I improved the second year. Mm-hmm. 
um show but you know you'll you'll have your own um things that you kind of pull from the show but i do think overall it's an incredible experience and people are uh they love being there um so you meet really kind of great people and the other artists are really amazing um so i think there's a great camaraderie yeah it's a good chance to expand your community oh yeah my network definitely expanded i mean that was the best part about doing the show for me what who i met feeling more confident about my work feeling like i definitely am setting up a presence in philadelphia um yeah yeah Yeah, i just moved here i've been here eight months so I feel like the PMA is my chance to be like, I'm here. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm literally emerging. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. This thank is, you. You have been a wealth of knowledge. Um, I, for sure, have picked up so much from you. Um, oh, thank you. And, and contact me anytime along the way as you prepare for this. Um, yeah. I'm happy to give you any kind of feedback I may have. And thank you for being so honest about expenses because, sure. I mean, I feel like, you know, talking about money, it makes us vulnerable, but yeah. it also makes us sharing your knowledge is just so helpful for people especially students so yeah, thank absolutely. you very much yep you're welcome all right this has been another episode of perceived value the podcast broaching the subject of value with artists this podcast is recorded and produced by me sarah rachel brown Music is by my really talented friends, Song Sparrow Research. You can learn more at www.perceivedvaluepodcast.com.